0: you got your Bibles this morning, if you'd open up to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 7 down through verse 19. Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion Lord, as we look at this text, this wonderful, yet challenging passage, I pray, God, that your spirit would give us understanding. Lord, I pray that, that I would share your word accurately. And, God, that I pray that it would change me in the process. Lord, today I, I pray that we would sense the urgency as to how we respond to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you can remember the first time you ever got into a physical fitness PE regiment where you felt like you and your buddies were a bunch of slugs and you had to put on gym outfits that I never really liked? And back in 1986, these things were incredibly, these are the Larry Bird shorts, you know, the little short ones. You had to wear these crazy shorts and you had to wear these, and I never liked it because they always gave me the wrong size. And I had to wear these out in PE class. And you had to start going through a regiment. And they'd do flexibility tests. I wasn't flexible. They'd do, like, strength tests. And I had no strength. But you know, like, when they start making you do pull-ups. And you start doing pull-ups. And the first time you do it, you just realize you're a weakling. And then they embarrass you because they hold your legs and you're doing them still. And your hands just get tore up. And, and you start to develop, like, blisters. And you've got blisters on your fingers. And they hurt. They hurt like crazy, so the next time you try to do a pull-up, it really hurts. Well, it's just like doing yard work. When you start doing yard work, when you're a kid and they give you a shovel or they give you a rake, and if your hands, if you've been lazy and you haven't done anything all summer, what happens? It gets really tender and really sensitive. But you know something takes place. As you keep doing the pull-ups, as you keep working in the yard, what happens? Your skin begins to change. And what was soft and sensitive begins to get hardened, and you develop what? Calluses. And all of a sudden, you're not as sensitive to what you once were sensitive to. Today, we're going to look at a passage in Hebrews chapter 3, and the title of this message that I'm going to look at with you is, Don't Harden Your Heart. Don't harden your heart. And as we look at this, I want us to consider this because we have to be aware of the danger of hardened hearts. Hardened hearts are dangerous within the life of the professing Christian. Today, we're going to look at four key takeaways to guard against a hardened heart. Four key takeaways to guard against a hardened heart. The first one that we're gonna jump in and look at this morning is we must learn from the past. We must learn from the past. I'm gonna let the, uh, Joy, I'm gonna let you drive this morning on the slides if you could help me. They're not working for me. We gotta learn from the past and what we're gonna see this morning is that The author of Hebrews is going to go back to a psalm, Psalm Psalm 95, I did that in the first service, not Psalm 195, Psalm 95. It's close to 100, but not quite there. And in Psalm 95, he quotes from verses seven through verse 11. And what he's doing is he's speaking about the hardness of the hearts of the people of Israel. Go back to verse eight. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And what's interesting is, is that David takes a passage that would be familiar to his readers. And he reminds them in Psalm 95 of not repeating the same error that the children of Israel did. And the reference that he's gonna use is really out of numbers. It's out of numbers and we see where that passage after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness at the waters of Meribah, In Numbers 20, verse 2, Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? Now, that's a shocking statement because what had happened with these people? What had taken place? They were a people that had experienced the deliverance of Egypt. I want you to look at Numbers 14. In verse 21 through 23, Numbers 14, 21 to 23. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times that have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. Isn't it interesting? They had seen his glory and seen the signs that he did in Egypt. I want you to think with me this morning as we look back to the exodus of the children of Israel. I want you to think a little bit about the story about God's faithfulness. What had happened They were people in captivity in Egypt. They were people that were in slave labor. God raised up a man named Moses in a miraculous way. He raised up Moses. He goes to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, sorry, I'm not doing that. And what did God do? God raised up plagues of judgment against the people of Egypt. And every plague that God used to demonstrate his power contrasted with the gods of the Egyptians. Every single one. Every god that they had. They had multiple gods. They were pluralistic. And what happened? Every plague demonstrated that it wasn't the gods of Egypt that ruled the world. It was the God of Israel. And what happened? The people rejoiced to see the hand of God. And it culminated where? At the Passover. And remember when the death angel passed over all of the camp of Israel, they were spared because they had blood on the doorpost and over the door. And what took place was foreshadowing the substance that would come in the future that Christ would be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And what happened? They came out of Egypt after the Passover. Pharaoh said, get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. As they left Egypt, God miraculously intervened as they came to the dead end of the Red Sea. He backed the waters up. The people came over on dry ground. The Egyptians saw this. Pharaoh sent the army in to do the very same thing the children of Israel had just done. And when they walked into the water, what happened? They drowned. God provided manna. God provided water in the wilderness. God provided the cloud God provided the pillar of fire. God was faithful in every way. Yet what was the response of the children of Israel? The children of Israel were bitter, embittered. If you look at the text here, we're going to see something, you know, and it's interesting because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we read about A significant thing, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And he goes on, he says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. What's fascinating to me when we look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 3 is the wording of these verses. Because one of the interpretive challenges as we look at this text is to ask questions like, Who is he speaking about? What was the state of their soul? What does the promised land mean? All kinds of things. What does the word rest mean? He uses the word rest in different ways in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And it's as if every context demands that we sort of look at it and discern how he's using it, where he uses it. There's so many interpretive questions. But one of the things that sticks out here about the experience of the Israelites Even though they had seen the glory of God and beheld all of his miracles, notice what God says to them. It says in verse 8, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Verse 9, Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. But notice verse 10. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always, notice that word, always, go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. And then as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What's interesting here is that it seems to me in looking at this and really discerning, seeking to discern, you know, we've got men like Moses and Aaron who did not go into the promised land, but we believe wholeheartedly these men will be in heaven one day. We believe there was a remnant that experienced forgiveness. But from the passage I just read, I think we would be naive if we did not consider the fact that there was a large group of people that will not be in heaven one day. That while they had experienced the glories of Egypt, they never went any further. And in fact, their lack of perseverance as they followed Moses demonstrates their spiritual state. In the same way, the author of Hebrews now says, as these people failed to persevere as they followed Moses, how much more should you persevere as you follow the one superior to Moses? Seems to be what the author is doing. If you look at Hebrews three sixteen, go down to 16 through 19. Notice the same idea. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief believe I was reading different explanations of Psalm 95. What is he trying to do? What is he doing? Four takeaways to guard us from hardened hearts. Going out to the church and he's saying, "Look, learn from the past. Learn." I was reading uh different commentary taters and different pastors. I came across these quotes by John Piper He says, in other words, they had seen God's gracious works. They had seen signs and wonders and miracles of mercy. They had tasted the heavenly gift. But instead of being softened to trust God in the day of trial, when things were difficult, they became hard and unbelieving, did not trust God's goodness, but murmured. The result was that God was angry, cut them off from the promised land. He goes on down, he says, Oh, how many professing Christians want the mercy of forgiveness so they won't go to hell, but have hard hearts towards the Lord when it comes to daily fellowship with Him. He points this idea here. He says, The story of Israel is an example for the professing church. Do not treat the grace of God with contempt presuming to receive it as an escape from the Egypt of misery, but not being satisfied with it as guidance and provision in the wilderness of this life. Learn from the past, but second of all this morning, the second takeaway to guard us against being hardened is listen to his word. Listen to his word. Notice verse seven, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, when we look at a therefore, we got to remind what it's there for. And we go back into verse six. And, and when we took, looked at verses one through six of Hebrews three, and what is he saying? If you're with us for the first time today, we're looking at a letter that demonstrates Jesus is better. He's writing to Jews tempted to go back into Judaism. They're tempted to leave the faith because they're dealing with persecution. They're dealing with plundering of their property. They're dealing with the prospect of death. And now that things are tough, their true root is beginning to show. And and the author of Hebrews seems confident that the reality of their faith is going to be evidenced by their perseverance or lack thereof. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice. This is is amazing because I want us to think about this word today. He's gonna use it over and over. Verse seven, he uses it. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And he uses it in verse 13. But exhort one another every day. Now notice the next phrase. As long as it is called today, isn't that an interesting phrase? Do you realize there will never be another today? I don't know about you, but I I used uh, to—I procrastinated all the time in school, and uh, I'd put things off to the last second. I'd start book reports at eleven thirty the night before. It was awful. And when we live like that in school, we have severe consequences. But there is a temptation to be apathetic to the things of God. And the Holy Spirit is urging us to see the necessity of responding to God in the present, not simply looking back at yesterday in the past. How many people have done that? How's your Christian life? Well, you know, I had a great experience with God at a revival that I was at when I was 16. Well, what's God doing in your life today? The person's 35. What's God doing in your life today? Well, I had a really neat experience with God when I was 16. You get the drift. Or people will be like this. You know, I'm convicted by what the sermon is showing. I'm convicted by what the word is saying. But you know what? I don't want to deal with it today. I'll deal with it tomorrow. Maybe you're a teenager here and you're thinking, you know what, I'll deal with this when I get in college. I'm a Christian I followed Christ, but you know what? Let me have a little bit of fun, a little bit of experience. Let me get through some things, and one day, maybe when I get engaged, maybe when I get married, maybe when I settle down, I will move forward with God, and that is the danger of self-deception. I'll tell you one of the scary things. We're going to see something here. He also uses the word in verse 15, but we're going to see that he's going to say, look, watch out, be careful for an evil an unbelieving heart. He's speaking about deception. He's speaking about how hardness can come upon you. It's interesting because we we can't, we don't know about tomorrow. We we right now only have today. And the Holy Spirit is calling us to see the necessity of today. I was driving back yesterday from Huntsville at about six o'clock, and I was coming close to Paint Rock, and I knew the weather was bad. But I, it was really strange because it was raining, not really pouring, not really, just a tiny bit of rain, cloudy. And I'd gone through Gurley, and I got coffee at this coffee place. And, and I was coming, and I was eating a triple chunk chocolate chip cookie. Scott laughs. And I was coming through, and all of a sudden, I noticed something strange. I was coming around the bend. and, and Okay, so normally, the clouds are how high up? I mean, several hundred feet. So, you know, have you ever been outside when there's a storm front and you go, wow, I can notice the clouds are moving fast. They're moving. Well, this was strange because the atmosphere and the clouds were going all the way to the ground. So I looked up and I was like, that's odd. The clouds are at ground level. And and as I saw it, I was like, this is not good because I noticed that it was getting ready. I was like, there is some massive amount of water about to hit me. And it started coming, and all of a sudden, it hit. And when it hit, my first reaction is, well, that's not good. I'm in a tornado. I wasn't in a tornado, but I couldn't see anything. I had my windshield wipers going as fast as they could, and I have never been in water like that. And I couldn't see anything, and the only recourse was to pull over, but I couldn't tell if I was on the shoulder or not. So then I got worried I was going to get hit. I put on my hazards, The people in front of me didn't know what to do. They were stopping. It was crazy. It came out of nowhere. Here's the danger. You look at a passage like this. And what he's doing, he's setting this up as if, if you are here this morning and are tempted to delay your spiritual response, you're not in a good place. In fact, you're in danger of an evil and unbelieving heart. Have you ever been anywhere where they evaluated your gait? <laughs> you are like, what? I've had injuries before, and I've been at physical therapy. And they say, all right, it's always fun when they say, you know, all my friends are really kind to me. They say, you look like Bigfoot when you walk. They'll pass me and be like, have you seen Barbara walking? He looks like Bigfoot. And I'm like, thanks, guys. I appreciate the encouragement really appreciate you minister to my hearts, But, but, but my gate, my gate, I have a unique gate. So when people watch your gate, what are they doing? They're saying, okay, how can we help detect maybe why you're injured? What are we looking at? We're watching you walk. What is your spiritual gate right now? Not yesterday. Not when you got saved. Right now. Right now. You, and I'm serious, because here's the danger. He's writing to people, and many of them are self-deceived in the thinking they're something they're not. They're professing Christ, but possibly walking down the road of apostasy. You see, if we were going to name a river, and we were going to call that river, the river of apostasy, there is a current within the river of apostasy and the name of the current that goes in the river is called unbelief. The people and the characteristic of apostates is an unbelieving heart. And it's as if here the Holy Spirit is like, look, We look at this and we go, God, what are you doing? How are you intending to bring application? And I firmly believe, isn't it unique? And isn't it magnificent how the Holy Spirit of God applies conviction where he sees fit? I don't know how he'll apply this to your heart today. You see, some may be in a place where they're literally walking down a road that is no different than these unbelieving Israelites. And see, their situation would be different. They would be people that had been around the things of God. You see, it's fascinating because today on Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday in many ways represents the week that leads to the greater exodus. The Exodus was an exodus from bondage in the wilderness. I mean, from bondage in Egypt to to freedom to go to the promised land. But we look at the The exodus that takes place through the cross of Jesus Christ and Palm Sunday is is literally pointing us to that Jesus is the greater exodus. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. And some people that could be here or any other church in America today or in the world, they have been around the church. They have heard the stories, they have heard the lessons, and they've even benefited from seeing God change the lives of some church people within their midst. They've heard the law of God. Now think about that, even for a lost man, the kindness of God is displayed in the common grace where people could hear the difference between right and wrong, because we're living in a country right now where we don't know what end is up. We are calling evil good, and we are calling good evil. So to even hear the word of God preached, even with a hardened heart, they are exposed to the things of God. But sadly, some are turning away. They're self-deceived. They have an evil and un believing heart. And he calls them here to listen to the word, listen to the word. It's not just learn from the past, but listen to the word. And notice how he sets this up here. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now that's fascinating statement. Unbelievable. If you want to see a biblical view of how the scripture works, there was some church in Atlanta. And one thing that's happening is progressivism in the church is on full speed ahead right now. And it basically said the Bible is not the word of God. The Bible is written by a community of, it was basically some statement that basically showed they didn't believe in the scripture. And, 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 and basically how do people call evil good and now make good evil and still be professing Christians? They have to dismiss the word of God. So what's our hope? Stay with the scripture, sola scriptura, scripture alone. When the scripture speaks, God speaks. Because how do we know that? Who wrote Psalm 95? Who would be the person we would say starts with a D? But what does he say in the text right here in verse 7? Therefore as who says the Holy Spirit. Now, this is exciting. What's fascinating, too, is you could say that the Holy Spirit said, past tense, Psalm 95, written by David way many years ago. But what does he say? He doesn't say said. He says says in the present tense. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit continues to speak. (laughs) Amazing. Now, this gets fun because listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter four and verse seven. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David so long afterward in the words already quoted. Now, notice what he just said. Saying through who? David. Wait a minute. What did he say in chapter 3, verse 7? Therefore, the Holy Spirit says. This is the exact truth of 2 Peter 1.21. I hope you see this. This is exciting. He says in 2 Peter 1.21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How do we respond to this text? Listen to the voice of God. Listen to God's word. You say, why? Because only God speaking through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit can reveal your true spiritual state. Maybe today you've got an evil, unbelieving heart that has never come to true saving faith in Christ. Maybe your profession in Christ is simply that. You signed a card, you said the sinner's prayer, you walked an aisle, you did something at vacation Bible school, but your spiritual gate, your spiritual life is a life that is of unbelief. It's not one of yieldedness, it's not one of grace, it's not one of evidence of perseverance within the faith. God applies this in different ways. We'll see in a moment how I believe the Christian takes this passage, how the Christian responds. You know, when I like what Alistair Begg said. He was talking about Pilgrim's Progress, and I want you to hear that this really grabbed me. In Pilgrim's Progress, there's this, all these lessons and all these characters that point out different things about the Christian life. And Bunyan brings out nine steps towards apostasy. You want to hear the steps that lead to apostasy according to Bunyan? Number one, you draw away your thoughts from the remembrance of God, death, and judgment to come. You don't want to think about God, you don't want to think about death, and you don't want to think about the judgment. Number two, you slowly stop private duties like prayer, curbing your lust, watching for temptation, sorrow for sin, and the like. Listen to number three. You turn away from the company of lively and warm Christians. Don't want to be around those people. Would rather be around people that claim to know Christ but are very lukewarm in their walk. Number four, after that, you grow cold to public duty as hearing the word preached, reading the Bible, godly fellowship and the like. You start drifting away. I don't need the church. I don't need to be at church. I can listen to God in my own closet. I can pray. I don't need the people around me. Number five, you begin to pick holes in the coats of some of the godly. You begin to say, they're not that great a godly person. Look at his sins. Look at his inconsistencies. Look at her problems. Look at all the things. It's sort of like the, uh, the log in your own eye. Number six, you begin to adhere to and associate yourself with carnal, loose, and immoral men and women. Number seven, you give in to carnal and immoral discourses and secrets. And you are glad if you can see such things in anyone else that is called Christian, that way you can commit your sin more boldly through their example. Isn't this scary? Basically, is the idea that you're removing yourself away, you're involved in private sin, and you actually find comfort when you see the same sins committed by other Christians because you will yourself to sleep. Number eight, after this, you begin to play with little sins openly. The guy that was hidden in his affair is now emboldened to introduce the woman he's having an affair with to his friends. He's now become boldened in his sin. Number nine, and then being hardened, you prove yourself to be as lost as they are thus being launched again into the gulf of misery, unless a miracle of grace prevent it, you perish forever in your own deception. And what did we learn earlier? Does this mean that a Christian can lose their salvation? May it never be. Why? The scripture is clear. He who began a good work in you will complete it. What happens when people do not endure? It reveals the lack of root that they had in Christ. What does First John say? They went out from us, but it revealed what? That they were never one of us. We get into this, the third key takeaway this morning. Not only did we learn from the past, not only do we listen to his word, that's our only hope. We're stirred in the response. We're stirred in the reality. But number three, guard your heart. I love this because this morning, We're going to see some passages of warning in verse six and verse 14, and again, try to walk through what is going on. I saw some uh, quotes as I went through studying this and listening to different things. The evidence of partaking in Christ is endurance. Another one, um, Jonathan Edwards, the surest proof of election is endurance to the end. Jack Graham says, faith that fizzles at the finish was faulty at the first. I think as we look at the text here, we begin to see that this is exactly what's going on. As we look at this third principle, guard your heart, guard your heart. What is he doing? The Holy Spirit uniquely will take people on the fence and through the power of his word, will bring conviction that they're no different than the unbelieving Israelites headed for the judgment of God in hell forever. But on the other hand, you know what the Holy Spirit will do? The Holy Spirit will take passages like this and the Holy Spirit will call the Christian that is walking in the moment in unbelief, and will remind them of their true identity, and will remind them of their heavenly calling, and will spur them on in righteousness. Let me ask you a question. How many in this room that are believers in Christ have gone through a season of apathy, and gone through a season of sin, And the Lord, you can remember distinctly as you look at your life many periods of time how the Lord has used either the preaching of his word or Lord has used the word of God or used a godly friend to spur you on to confess and repent and continue your walk with God. Anybody in here? You see, this morning, this passage serves as a call for the people of God to walk in the rest that they have in Jesus Christ, because if you're here today and you're a Christian, praise be to God, you have literally entered into salvation rest. You're still awaiting the rest of heaven, but by the grace of God, God desires that you walk and live out of the rest that you have in Jesus. But some of you today are apathetic. Some of you today are away from the word. Some of you today, as you regard your spiritual gait, you could be like me at many times where the Holy Spirit, this literally pricks my heart and begins to show. And I want you to be encouraged. What is it that does that? It's the kindness of God that leads a man to repentance. The kindness of God. What did Jesus say in John 17, 17? Sanctify them in the truth for thy word is truth. How do we hear the voice of God? Through subjectivism, through feelings, through things that I think in my head? Or where do we hear God speak? We hear the voice of God when we read the word of God. And what do we learn in Romans 10, 17? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. We get in the word and the spirit jolts us back into walking with him in a way that only the redeemed can understand. You see, this wasn't about loss of salvation. This was about evidence of salvation. But I'll tell you something. While assurance is the privilege of all the redeemed, it's only a blessing to those who are resting. Think about that. Anybody who's partaking of a heavenly calling, anybody who is a holy brother or sister, can they be assured in the faith? Absolutely. 1 John's all about Assurance. But let me ask you something, when do you walk in the joy of the assurance that you have? When you're walking in unbelief? No, but when you're walking in an active rest of faith in Jesus Christ. He's calling them to live out. He's calling them to endure. He's calling them to persevere. He's calling them to keep going. He's saying, look, don't go back to Judaism. Keep going on in the faith. I remember being in Portland years ago, and I lived with three other guys, and we were all from the South. I was from Chattanooga with two other guys, and I had a buddy from Lawrenceville, Georgia. And we all lived in Portland, and everywhere we went, people were like, Where are you from? Where are you from? Could you say that again? They'll ask us words, Can you say that word? They'd spell words, Can you say that word? And we'd say it, and you get the idea. They couldn't believe our Southern accents. You see, Talking that way didn't make me Southern. It revealed that I was from the South. See the difference? The author of Hebrews is not saying endure in order that God will save you. What would that be? That'd be no different than Judaism. And actually would completely go against the idea of biblical rest because we rest from our work and we rest in the work of Christ. So he's not speaking of earning your salvation. He's speaking of, look, understand what real partaking in Christ looks like. What does it look like? You see, when we look at Hebrews chapter three, verse six, and it says, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end, it's the idea that we then show that we are God's house. But I was reading a commentator on this. And notice verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence. Firm to the end. Now now, now put your thinking caps on here because this is rich. He says this, and this really helped me. In verse 14, we have an if statement. Very much like the one in verse six. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. But listen to this. Being partakers of Christ in verse 14 is virtually the same as being partakers of the heavenly calling. And he goes on. He says, we have become partakers. The condition is future if we hold fast assurance to the end. But then this is the catch. But the effect of the condition relates to the past. We have become partakers of Christ. So it's clear that the point here is not hold fast to your assurance in order to become in the future, a partaker of Christ. The point is hold fast to your assurance in order to show that you are a partaker of Christ. And it is over and over and over in these passages we saw Hebrews three eleven. Take care, brothers, lest there be any attitude, any unbelieving heart. Hebrews two one. We must pay much closer attention. Hebrews three. If we hold fast our confidence. Hebrews three fourteen. We have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our confidence. Hebrews six eleven. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Hebrews 10.35, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Hebrews 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This rest is, is, is not just rest in the future, it's rest in the present And it's experienced by those Christians walking in belief, walking by faith. We we see all the way through the New Testament. The call of the Christian, without faith it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, over and over and over and over. It's, It's a reminder of their calling. You know, this morning, you remember the passage we looked at in Hebrews 2, 11. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. All have one source. He who sanctifies those who are sanctified. What does that remind you of? If you, when when you're walking in unbelief, let me ask you something. When you're walking apathetic, when you're walking tolerating sin in your heart and life, have you lost sight of your calling and have you lost sight of your identity? Absolutely. He reminds them in Hebrews 2 and then he says in chapter three, verse one, what? Therefore, holy Brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. And then what does he remind them? He gives them the warning of the people of Israel. And he says, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, and unbelieving heart. He says, don't go that route. Don't go that route. Don't live that way, but guard your heart. The final one this morning, we're going to move quick through this one encourage one another. This got me so excited, encourage one another. Have you ever wondered what Christian community is supposed to look like? Look at verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When were the people of Hebrews tempted to bail on the faith? When things were easy or when things got hard? You ever notice that typically when people commit apostasy, it's when the spouse leaves them? It's when they get fired from the job? It's when the kid gets sick? It's when they get cut from the team? It's when they don't get in the college they want to get into? It's when the person breaks their heart? What happens? Things get tough. And what takes place? The root of their faith is sadly revealed in those moments. What do we need in the Christian journey more than anything in the body of Christ? We need brothers and sisters, not just that we, I love to eat with you guys. I love to laugh with you all. I love to watch sports with you all, unless you're Bama fans, because y'all keep winning. But but I I love doing those things, but seriously, if church gets away from verse 13, we've lost sight of church, but exhort one another. What do I need in my life? I need people who are constantly pointing me to the treasures that I have in Jesus. I need people constantly pointing me to the the rest that I have in Christ. And what does that do? It, It exhorts me. It exhorts me. It guards me against the hardening and the deceptive nature of sin. I had a guy that uh, there's a friend of mine that is uh, a guy that I would put on a, you know, if you said, give me 20 people that have been like mentors to you, he wouldn't even know I'd list him, but he's one of them. And he lives out of state. And uh, I found out recently he's dealing with a cancer diagnosis. And and I got the sense and a message I got from him that he's discouraged. And this morning I'm going over the sermon. It's early. I tell you, sometimes the sweetest moments I have with the Lord is when things. <laughs> You struggle so much with the text, and you can't understand it, and you can't understand it, and you can't understand it, and you can't understand it. And And then it's just like the plane takes off, and you begin to hit your own heart. And it just got me so excited. It was just like I was the only one up, and it was just hitting me. And immediately, it was like the Spirit of God just impressed on my heart. It was just the sense of like, I need to do this. I'm not talking about some mystical kind of thing. It was like this passage urged me to encourage someone today. Have you ever thought I'll write that letter tomorrow? I'll send that encouragement note next week. What does he say? No, today, not tomorrow, right now. What do we do? Encourage the brethren. And I sent him a message. I said, man, I said, I'm praying for you today that you will trust God, that you will follow him. And I told him, I said, man, you have been an encouragement to my life. And I'm telling you, I don't do that all the time. There's so many times I've been apathetic. So many times I've looked to yesterday, said I'll do it tomorrow. But it was like in the moment I was thinking, that's what we need in the body of Christ. We need people who will hold us accountable, who will point us to Jesus. And if we get caught up with Christians who are not even walking by faith, but are just going through the motions, they're the most dangerous people we can be around. Because you know what it's going to do? It's going to tempt us and lend us to nothing but apathy. What do we need? We need Christians to come alongside us. And again, today, th- this is not about anything other than I pray that this would spur our hearts to follow after Jesus wholeheartedly today. Today. How can you encourage someone today? Today. You know, I was convicted. I mean, like, there's, as a shepherd, it's a daunting call. And and I was thinking, man, God, by your grace, would you help me to be a better shepherd to people that wonder? To people that just, you know what I mean? People that literally can just disappear from the church. What's going on with their heart? What's going on with their life? Not not with the goal of judging them or coming against them, but what should be the heart of the body of Christ who recognizes their own propensity to sin, who recognizes their own weakness, their own problems. What should be the attitude? Let's run after them. Let's run after them. Let's go after them and encourage them. Let's encourage them to look to Jesus. Let's encourage them not to live in isolation Let's encourage them that sanctification is designed by God to be a group project. We can't live the Christian life in isolation. We can't. Verse 13 literally makes it an impossibility. This morning, tough passage, isn't it? But you know what? There's encouragement here because I want to leave with this this morning. Why would we Persevere. How can we do this? Life is hard. You get older and things happen. You lose people that you love. People that are older than me say, put your seatbelt on, man. You don't know anything yet. You haven't even been there yet. How do we keep going? How do we keep? How do we guard against the flesh that is so tempting? How do we keep moving? How do we guard against apathy? I love these passages. because I want to leave you with hope this morning. The people of God look to the builder of the house. Romans 8 verse 30 is comforting. In Romans 8:30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Don't get caught up into the questions of predestination in this passage. Focus on the fact that if you're his, you are predestined and your future glorification is as good as gold in the eyes of God. What's future tense is now considered in the present. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 32, 40 is really comforting. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Think about that. If that's not present within me, and he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is not present in us, we have no hope of enduring. None, none. If we make this about works, if we make this about our ability to endure, we've obliterated the gospel. But the gospel hope is that the builder of the house is faithful to the house. And then listen to Hebrews 13, 21. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us, That which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. You see, that's why today endurance is manifestation that the Holy Spirit will not let us go. That's our only hope. That's our only hope. So, this morning, four takeaways to guard against a hardened heart learn from the past. Guard your heart. Abide in his rest. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. This morning, one application point, really, too. I want you to, like, think to yourself, all right, what's my spiritual gate? What's my spiritual heart? Maybe you're here today, and i, and I I'll plead with you. I've been there before. Maybe you're here today, and you're playing around with individual sin, Maybe you're stuck in pornography. Maybe you're doing something that you know is wrong. Maybe you are, you're whatever it may be, and you literally are coming around the things of God and you're living a lie. Understand, today is the day to respond. And you may be thinking, how can I respond? Only through the grace of the gospel of Jesus. It's only through the power of Jesus because he's the one who enables what he commands. So this morning, in your weakness, cry out to him. Say, God, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to repent. I don't, how to be, I don't know how to stop being a fraud. But understand, if you're deluded into thinking you can continue to look to tomorrow, you will suffer the same peril of the people in Israel that never went in. evaluate your gate, and then I want you to ask yourself the question or look at the statement today, today, today. What is it that God's calling you to do today? Maybe you're with us and and I've been there and I can relate. Maybe you're thinking, man, I haven't been in God's word in the longest time maybe you got time for every hobby you can imagine. You've got time to excel at your job in every possible way, but you have no time for the things of God today. Today, this is urgent. This is urgent. This is life or death. This isn't, that was a good platitude to learn more about The Jews that failed, no, this is God urging our hearts because we're not guaranteed tomorrow. But thanks be to God in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God in Jesus. Would you bow your head? Oh, dear God. I pray we. We'd understand your word, and God, we would, be, we would be so humbled that we celebrate this Palm Sunday because you came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That, God, you, you paved the way. You are our substitute. You paid the price. And, oh, God, I pray that you would guard us against spiritual apathy and spiritual deception. And I pray, Lord, today we would see the invitation And the joy of running after you, trusting in your promises. Lord, thank you that there's hope for us in Christ. Lord, I pray for those that may be here that are in the place of delusion. I pray today that hear your voice. I pray today that today would be the day of salvation. But Lord, I pray for my brothers and my sisters in Christ. I pray today we would be so amazed. We would be so encouraged that you love us so much that you long for us to walk in full assurance until the end, that God, you call us not just to know and hear about your rest, but you desire that we walk in it and live in it and abide in it daily. Oh God, I pray that that would change us Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, God, that as we leave, we'd be changed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You'd stand with me.